The materials provided are for information only and do not constitute as an offer. For investment advice, please consult professional advisors. Neither Zach or Jack are financial advisors. The information contained in this podcast episode has been compiled with considerable care to ensure its accuracy at the date of publication. However, no representation or warranty, express or implied, is made to accuracy or completeness. We shall not be responsible for any consequential effect, nor be liable for any direct, consequential, incidental, indirect loss or damage, however caused, arising from the use of, inability to use, or reliance upon any information or materials provided on this podcast, whether or not such loss or damage is caused by us. Links to third-party sites are provided for your information only. The content and software of these sites have been issued by third parties. As such, we cannot be responsible for the accuracy of information contained in these sites, nor be held liable for any loss or damage arising from or related to their use. Investors should be cautious about any and all crypto asset and investment recommendations and should consider the source of any advice on crypto asset selection. Various factors, including personal or corporate ownership, may influence or factor into an expert's stock analysis or opinion. All investors are advised to conduct their own independent research into individual crypto assets before making a purchase decision. In addition, investors are advised that past crypto asset performance is no guarantee of future price appreciation. Do not invest money you cannot afford to lose. All investments come with a degree of risk. Hey, Jack. Hey, Zach. How you doing? I'm doing well. Just trying to keep up with this hustle bustle energy here in New York City. Yeah, welcome back. Thank you. Feels good to be back. I, I love New York for some nice short high energy stays. Well, our fantastic guest today is used to the hustle and bustle, although of a different city. Uh, why don't you give him a proper introduction? Yeah, so Yaniv Feldman is someone who many of you might know from his prolific newsletter in the industry. It's uh, one of two that I read on a daily basis. He is a investor, token economist, and just kind of all-around polymath thinker that I'm really excited to speak to today. Uh, Yaniv, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So, Yaniv, what got you interested in the space? What's your journey? I, I come from a media background. Uh, in the last, uh, uh, in 2008, I started a tech blog called Geek Time uh, that covers all around tech, you know, from consumer to developers to enterprise. Uh, so, you know, I caught Bitcoin rather early, around 2011, started following, started covering it. Uh, 2013, I actually bought my first couple of Bitcoins, but it wasn't until 2016, uh, a little after Ethereum started, you know, going around that I actually realized that there is a lot more in this space, you know, that can create value, uh, to the world. I come from an economics background and a tech background, combining those two together, really gave me a, an, interesting, an interesting journey into the rabbit hole because I looked at things both from an economical perspective and a technology perspective. And, you know, and it gave me, it, it really much opened my eyes to see, you know, a whole new revolution or, you know, I would say the next stage of the internet. As someone who experienced, you know, the internet revolution as, you know, a, a, um, as a teenager, it was, you know, a very exciting thing for me to, to explore and understand and be a part of uh, uh, as, you know, this new kind of uh, revolution or evolution, depends on how you look at it, started. 
So before we jump into any specific areas of crypto, uh, I'm really interested how has there been any tension in the way you view the field or how or what excites you in the field? Any tension between your background as an economist and as a technologist? Again, as an economist, you know, I, I uh, even though I, I studied, you know, traditional economics, meaning Keynesian, you know, I, I always had a lot of questions, you know, and things that didn't quite work out for me logically. And when I first, you know, discovered Bitcoin and, and, and learned, on, learned about the Austrian School of Economics, you know, things started making much more sense uh, to me. So, uh, again, th- there, there was kind of tension between uh, uh, my understanding of economics and, and the new things that I've discovered through uh, Bitcoin and, and, and uh, uh, cryptocurrencies and blockchain in general. I must say that my technical understanding of things helped me a lot to, especially through the ICO boom uh, in, in 2016, 2017, to really you know, make sense of the concept of token economics. Even though a lot of these things are mostly you know, game theory, contract theory uh, uh, kind of proposals, uh, there are a lot of things that are dependent on, on the way technology works. Uh, even though, you know, in today's technology, you can implement a lot of things. But I think that, you know, the, the, uh, the scales between economics and technology uh, put a lot of boundaries uh, on what you can and can't do, at least at the moment. I found it, you know, to be rather interesting to learn, you know, what can and can't be done. So, you know, it, it's not something specific that I can point to, but... Uh, you know, specific in terms of uh, uh, specific, I would say, crypto primitives that are trying to play with with how, you know, how people would behave on the network and how you would expect them to versus how it's implemented from a technology perspective. So, again, it's, it's more of a matter of implementation than theory. But that, you know, that's the kind of tension that I can think of. Yeah, sure. I, I think that makes a lot of sense. I was alluding a bit just for people who, I guess, have less perspective. I think there can be tension. And we saw this a bit, Zach and I were recently at the MIT Business of Blockchain Conference. And MIT is a very technology-oriented community, no surprise. I mean, yeah. they're also known for their economics, but you know, the blockchain component is very technology-oriented. And so I think that there, there can be a tension between people who are very focused on the technology and are interested in advances or invests in technology or just things that technologists find cool versus the things that maybe investors project to have economic value. And sometimes something that's extremely cool technologically isn't so likely to have economic value. And that can pit investors against developers, you know, developers who are more interested in working on things they find interesting, investors who want the things that are being worked on to have economic value. So, while there shouldn't be very much tension, I think there can be. So I, I was just wondering if you had um, encountered that in sort of your personal journey of satisfying your curiosity about this technology. Again, I would say that, you know, most investors that have that kind of conflict are, you know, traditional investors that didn't, you know, quite went all the way in to understand, you know, the space, the industry, the technology and what it means and how it works. 
there's a lot of uh, 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 paradigms about uh, uh, traditional economy that needs to be changed when you when you dive into the space. And the entire concept of you know uh, working with networks instead of company and value flowing to the network instead of the, the shareholders and how you accrue value in the network and the entire concept of, 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 of business and corporations is being challenged uh, uh, by the way things worked in the space. And if you don't understand the, the basic concept of it, you know, then the technology doesn't really matter. And I know a few investors, you know, that started digging into the space, especially, you know, during the ICO boom that wanted to, to maybe gain something from the hype. And, you know, they worked out, exactly the same they would, as they would look at traditional startups, which, you know, was quite difficult. And again, one of the challenges of a lot of the startups in the space is, is trying to understand, you know, where, where the value flows and where it accrues and whether it's with shareholders or the network, whether there's a token and what it stands for and where its value is. And when you talk about technology, you know, there are a lot of things, especially right now in, in the, uh, what we call the, the infrastructure phase of, of the industry uh, that are, like you said, they're super cool and they can do a lot of things, but they don't have, you know, that amazing use case or amazing market potential because you, could, you can't really understand the market because it's really different, you know, uh, um, than traditional uh, startup-oriented markets. The, the best example, you know, that I give for for that kind of conflict is looking at open finance or decentralized finance. I mean, most people or most investors that look at this space look at you know serving the unbanked or the underbanked. That you know, it's a huge uh, uh, population and and a huge uh, uh, potential. But you know, looking at the way the space is today. You know, I don't see any, you know, uh, person in, in Africa opening up a CDP and maker. It, you know, it's not there yet. It might, it might or even probably be there in, in 10 years, maybe even more. But right now it serves, you know, a whole different purpose, which is mostly, you know, the, uh, as a base layer for financial instruments uh, uh, inside uh, this closed industry. Uh, which again, it serves a different purpose and and still has value, but different. Uh, so you know, trying to understand the economics behind it and the governance behind it doesn't really matter if you don't really understand the thesis that you're working towards. If you go in in depth in in understanding, you know how uh, uh, maker token uh, uh, creates value for the token holders through, you know, its stability fee, how the governance mechanism works. And, you know, it doesn't really matter if you don't really understand, you know, the purpose of MakerDAO right now in the next two, three, four years in 10, 20. I think investors, you know, look, have different time frames when they look at, you know, crypto investments and a lot of people, a lot of investors don't really make that differentiation. So what I said was that you have to really have and understand the thesis when you're coming to, to invest in, in cryptocurrencies or crypto assets of any kind uh, before you dive into the technology. 
Uh, after you do that, you know, it's a, it's a fair game. But until then. So, so to paraphrase, Yaniv, you have, you know, go to market and the overall business strategy is often underlooked mm-hmm. by crypto investors compared to, yeah. let's say, the tokenomics or, you know, the, you know, the new esoteric feature on this smart contract network. Exactly. So you sent us an article beforehand that you, you wanted to discuss by, uh, you know, put out by placeholder VC, uh, Chris Bernisk and, uh, yeah. Joel. Do you want to talk a little about that and, and, you know, what yeah, views well, on that are and what kind of your framework is for, you know, let's say you do like the thesis, you like the go to market of, let's say maker DAO, you're looking at it over a long time frame. you know, now how would you analyze maker or, you know, as similar assets? So, so, so their thesis, you know, was more pertaining to, to uh, how you evaluate, you know, different kinds of, of crypto assets. What they did was basically uh, work, you know, by the uh, asset superclass theory uh, by Greer, categorizing the assets into three, three groups, which are capital assets, uh, consumable, transformable assets, and store of value assets. And, and trying to value, you know, each of them differently as you do in, in a traditional world. What they, what they look at, you know, is that crypto assets created a new type of hybrid between capital assets and consumable assets that didn't exist before. I mean, you wouldn't go into a supermarket and, and buy your groceries with an Amazon stock or an Apple stock. But in crypto, you know, the, these are things that, on the one hand, accrue value, and on the other hand, can be used, you know, for payment or for services in, in different kinds of ways. And that created a new challenge in, in how you uh, uh, value these kinds of things. Most, you know, I would say most, some valuation frameworks up until, you know, the last few months looked at uh, crypto assets and mostly store of value assets and some utility tokens as a uh, result of the MV equals PQ formula, the market cap uh, times the velocity equals the price versus quantity, which, you know, pretty much uh, one of the things, and that got me into, you know, to, the, the token economics part, because a lot of the project that we looked, that we looked at in the last couple of years were, you know, constrained in terms of velocity, because the their use case, you know, was I use a token to buy a service and then I no longer need it. So I only buy it if I want to buy the service and then I dispose of it when I buy the service. So the velocity was, you know, rather high, which would create a problem because the market cap was much lower. Uh, and what, what Chris and Joel offered, you know, in, in, in their new paper was creating a, a new kind of, a new kind of valuation method called uh, discounted value flow that's more driven from DCF. Uh, in traditional finance uh, that basically, you know, examines uh, the value that flows through the network as a means to, to value it. And, and that's, you know, a much more suitable take when you look at crypto networks, because, you know, when you look at things like MakerDAO and, you know, the velocity of, of Maker doesn't really says anything about the way or the value um, that the network accrues. You know, you need to look at things like uh, the amount of, of uh, value stored, you know, within Maker 
or, or stake within Maker in order to understand, you know, what the network is worth. And you need to understand how much value it generates to its uh, token holders through uh, stability fees, which is something that's a bit different than the yeah. uh, traditional uh, MVP. I'll jump in here real quick to shed some clarity, because I think you're, you're right on. I just wrote something about this where I think the, high, the issue of high velocity Mm-hmm. is often it's misconstrued as a cause rather than an explanation of how a token could be used in a marketplace without accruing value, even if a lot of goods and services are being sold. Um, and so essentially anything in an economy is going to be priced ultimately sort of as a function of supply and demand. So if people would rather have your token or token X compared to $100, and the price is going to be at least $100. And so how can it be that if I create, let's say, some network where I'm selling distributed computer space um, and I sell something called file token, and you have to use file token to purchase distributed computing space, why isn't it that as more computing space is bought, so as more computing space bought is bought, how should we expect a file token to appreciate and the answer is that it might not appreciate very much at all because it's possible for that token to change hands extremely rapidly mm-hmm. um, and clear the market. And mm-hmm. so if there's not a very high demand for the token, it's unlikely to become very valuable. And so the way that we would be able to sell all the distributed computing space that people wanted with a token that wasn't very valuable is that that token would be changing hands very rapidly, which is what we're talking about when we say that velocity would be high. Exactly. Um, so yeah, I've, when you're talking about tokens that uh, can be used for things like staking mm-hmm. and accruing some sort of dividend payment, then clearly I think MV equals PQ is either insufficient or at least not intuitive enough of a way to evaluate how much a token is worth or what, where is the market likely to value this token. And so we have to have some mechanism that can easily be incorporated into our valuation method to evaluate, you know, how much is being generated and through the dividend process and how should that be valued in the present. And I think that's what they're trying to do primarily in this article that we're referencing. I, I agree. I think, you know, one of the, one of the challenges that they have uh, they presented, you know, in the article is the fact that, you know, you do have different kinds of assets that, that are both, you know, commodity-like, and uh, are also, you know, consumable. And, and this creates, you know, a, a problem because you, you value, you know, different parts of the network by different formulas. And how do you, how do you weight, you know, each part? And, and that's, you know, one of the challenges of, of, of valuing crypto networks and crypto assets right now is you need to understand, you know, what is the right way? Obviously, you know, the, there are dozens uh, of valuation methods, even in traditional finance, and that's a part of the, the, the market game. I mean, you know, everyone tries to understand the true value versus the uh, supply and demand value and, and see if there is a, a, a something that the market is missing uh, in order to, to, to make a bet, either short or long. 
But the, the thing is that right now in crypto, because everything behaves a little differently, all the models are still rather new. And that's, you know, part of the, part of the, um, I think the most interesting part right now, at least for me, uh, and in crypto is, is trying to understand exactly, uh, how it works or how it will work in, and to try and understand which model can basically try and predict future value better. Again, it's it's early on. There's nothing you know that I can say that that uh, has been proven to work better than others. But there's a lot of things that make sense right now, and we'll need to see how the market plays out in order to see you know whether or not uh, they they truly make sense. So, so Yaniv, we were talking a little bit before just briefly about Maker. And yeah. for a little context to our listeners, so I'll put a link to this. MakerDAO is in many ways kind of like the poster child of decentralized finance. Uh, the Maker token is one of the top tokens by market cap. I believe something like 3% of all of ETH is like locked up into collateralized debt positions uh, yeah, within the MakerDAO protocol. And what, what MakerDAO does is it creates a stable coin, the stable coin DAI, and it has an over collateralized pool, minimum 150%, but in practice, I believe uh, closer to upwards of 200% of locked up ETH, of which the it's generally understood that the primary f- function of people actually doing this is to go levered long on their, their ETH positions. And what's been pretty amazing about MakerDAO is not just the this, this sheer scale, of the fact that it's like you know over two hundred million dollars that's locked up in the CDPs and being used right now, but that as the price of ETH fell over ninety percent, uh, they managed to maintain rough you know close to complete stability. So I think there's a lot of you know different opinions and on you know where value will accrue and if like the maker token was or is a good investment and how that works and you know definitely using just you know a traditional discounted cash flow model. Or even, you know, kind of the what a lot of people in crypto like of just purely MV equals PQ. I think both of those will miss the mark in terms of really finding whether or not Maker's a good investment or not. I have my thoughts. You need what's the framework you use and kind of how do you how do you think about Maker? So, so following up on what on what you said, you know, having Maker, you know, being able to sustain peg all the way for either back down was amazing you know it, it really surprised me i you know my bet was that they won't be able to so you know it was rather surprising for me that, that they did what was more surprising for me is that you know in ethers bouncing back from from uh, uh 80 to 160 they did not you know the, the what happened in the last uh three months where they pretty much upped the stability fee over and over and over up until last Friday they reached 19.5%, you know, was somewhere along the way, you know, I, I said, you know, guys, it's not working, you know, you need to find another way to, to control the supply because the stability fee is, is proving, you know, not to be enough. Even though right now uh, Makers, uh, MakerDAO CEO, uh, Ruben Christensen said, that they consider, you know, die being stable at the moment. It's still not exactly at, at one, but let's say it's it's more it's more stable than the uh, 0.94 that it came to. I think the 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 peak of its peg loose. I think that you know the 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 value in maker right now 
is uh, mostly, like you said, for people who want to go, you know, uh, uh, long on ETH. And also for people who are playing all kinds of DeFi arbitrage games, uh, which is very interesting because up until, you know, the stability fee change, right now it goes the other way around. You could have taken, you know, a, a, a loan through Maker, put the same, you know, money work on Compound and earn a bigger interest. So you'd lose like nothing and basically make interest, you know, on your money uh, uh, no matter how you go. And it's completely decentralized and I would say almost completely counterparty risk-free. So uh, there are, when we're talking about valuing, you know, MakerDAO, I separate my thesis to, to short-term and longer term. And on the short term, I look at, you know, what, what it's being used as right now, like what we just talked about. And I'm looking, you know, that's one of the, I would say, only things outside of Bitcoin that have actually been proven useful uh, to someone. It's not a big community, even though, you know, they're, they're about 300 million uh, uh, worth uh, dollars worth of ETH uh, locked in uh, and maker, there are not a lot of CDPs and there are not a lot of users who are actually, you know, active on the platform, but there doesn't need to be, you know, a big amount of, of users uh, on a platform uh, because the community itself in general and crypto and the people who are actually doing finance on crypto is rather small. And for that, you know, I think that maker, again, one of the only ones uh, uh, that, is actually being able to prove a uh, product market fit for that specific purpose. And, and for that specific purpose, you know, the, the, the way I look at it as uh, uh, valuation, as I see, you know, the, the entire DeFi market and its growth rate over time, I see, you know, players, new players coming in. So what I try to do when I value maker is that I look at both the value it generates for its token holders and uh, the value it generates for the market as a whole. And I subtract, I would say the risk, uh, which is the, the, the cent, so, so-called centralized risk in, in MakerDAO, which is basically the governance of, of, of uh, uh, the token holders, because MakerDAO, I would say easily, because it does have a big mode in the in sense of you know the amount of money it already has stake, but MakerDAO can be forked uh, and recreated without Maker in play. You know, just plain old ETH, and that's you know a risk that grows, uh, uh, especially as the stability fee grows. At least again, to my opinion, and I see you know uh, uh, other platforms uh, that serve similar purpose. On, on, you know, in, in, in creating decentralized loans. Uh, and on the other hand, I also look at just the same as you would look at a startup. I look at, you know, the future roadmap, uh, uh, multi-collateral debt that they're working on and, and due to be out real soon. And I'm trying to assess the value for that, again, to the token holders, the demand that will come from the market, you know, on top of what it has right now. So it's it's kind of a mix and match uh, between you know what between DVF 
for the, that's the um, discounted value flow for maker holders in a tradition, a more traditional uh, uh, valuation assessment and future valuation assessment for the market and how it will behave in the next one or two years, given that scenario. That's my short-term, uh, my short-term thesis and my short-term approach to valuing, you know, these kind of projects and makers specifically. Uh, it would work the same for for other uh, for other DeFi assets uh, like uh, Uniswap, uh, DYDX. Uh, Dharma is a little different because it's somewhat more centralized, but again, pretty much the same thing. Uh, but looking, you know, long run, looking like 10, 20, 30 years to the future, which is, again, a little different. Most investors don't look at such a time frame. Even when you invest in, in traditional startups, you look at, you know, VCs look at 7 to 10 years. You don't look at 10, 20, and, and so on and so on. But building something, you know, from from... I would say the basic cornerstone of, of something that didn't exist before. It's like the same as investing, you know, in, in, in Google is considered even, you know, mid-stage internet. I'd say 1992, maybe Netscape, maybe Yahoo. You know, these are things that are not really clear on how they're going to develop on, on how they're going to change and how their market, you know, will look like in 10, 20, 30 years. It's hard for people to even imagine that in the last in the last two three months, what I've been doing is I've been diving really deep into futurism and trying to understand the science behind it and how you understand trends and extrapolate you know the future behind them, and that's really interesting because when you look at a technology and and the basic shift of of uh, uh, economics and revolution technology technological revolutions and economical revolutions in the past. It's rather interesting to look at these kind of things that start right now and where they're going to be in, in 10, 20, 30 years. Because again, most people don't look at that. And, and when I do, you know, some of my investments, uh, uh, I say, you know, I, I put out like 10 to 20% of, of the investments I do personally uh, at this time horizon. I'm saying I'm going to put it there I'm not going to look whether it's going to go up, it's going to go down. Maybe it's you know going to be wiped out completely. Uh, but I think you know that's a basic cornerstone. It's you know think of as you would invest in in, in Amazon when it you know went IPO, even though they were you know rather familiar and already had revenue streams. But Yahoo in their early days or AOL in the beginning. Um, yeah. So so you need before you get too far down this rabbit hole, I, I understand that, you know, kind of your thesis on maker from, again, like a more strategy go to market perspective, but it's still a little unclear to me kind of where you stand in terms of evaluating, you know, what it looks like. So for, I think I share a similar approach both to valuing the token as well as on, you know, what it would look like for them to be successful and how that could pan out. Like mm-hmm. based, on, based on that framework, are you, are you bullish? Are you bearish? You know, have, have you... Have you done that work for Maker, or do you, or do you feel like you need to put some more time into? So, so again, I, I, every work you do in this market is, you know, I wouldn't say worthless, but it, it devalues uh, uh, every day that moves forward. It's not like the traditional, you know, startup market where nothing is liquid, and you do, you know, this work, and it, it's enough for a few months or a year or two. 
when you do that in a market, things change every day. And specifically for Maker, I have done that uh, a couple of months in the past, but things have changed, you know, significantly in the last two months, especially, you know, uh, with what happened with the stability fee. But overall, I am very bullish on Defy in general and Maker specifically. I think that the value, it's one of the, I would say, the poster child of, of how value can accrue within the network. They've done a lot of things correctly, and they are trying to correct stuff that have gone wrong. I do have you know, some uh, uh, concerns, especially with regards to uh, uh, the, uh, the team. Uh, that came, you know, this all debacle that came out recently with the Purple Group, the Purple Pill Group, uh, if you've heard of it. Yeah, there was very early on, there was a a very big debate, you know, within the maker team around, you know, whether to go the more uh, decentralized, unregulated way or, you know, go through the regulated way and, and register with the license so they'll be able to work with more institutions and so on and so on. Uh, so the, the, the kind of groups, you know, they were like the blue pill and the red pill and the matrix, whether you want to go uh, uh, the red pill and go completely decentralized, we're going to cut off, you know, everything traditional finance and the blue pill saying, you know, we, in order for this to work, uh, uh, we need to to work with the the traditional financial institutions and governments and everything else. And uh, where Rune Christensen, the the CEO, was you know the the, the blue pill guy, and a lot of people and, and a different part of the team were were the red pill. And in order to um, to try and find the middle grounds, you know, they created a group called the Purple Pill Group, where they discussed you know how things are are you know, would work up until a certain point. And in the last, I think, couple of weeks, uh, there was a, a, a letter that leaked or was open. I don't really, uh, I don't really know uh, that the, C, the CTO of, of Maker wrote to, to the CEO explaining, you know, why, what's happening and why he doesn't agree with the way, you know, the, the system works. And, and that was after the CEO asked some of the board members of the foundation to, to resign because they were, to, to his opinion, incompatible to what they wanted to do with, with Maker. Having looked at, you know, what happened, what's happening uh, uh, in the team and especially, you know, the CEO, again, I think he's a super smart person and I've value his opinion, I share even some of his uh, 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 opinions uh, regarding Maker, I see, you know, a, a conflict within the team, especially considering that uh, um, most of Maker uh, is, you know, still being financed through uh, their uh, fundraising and the fact that uh, Andreessen bought some of their token treasury about a year or so back. So if you don't have a stable team to support that uh, and you don't have a decentralized open source uh, mechanism that other protocols have, that's a, a big risk for me uh, as an investor. But overall, looking you know, just at the stats, I'm still bullish on Maker. So pivoting a little bit, you mentioned that you've been 
studying futurism and the progression of technology. And yeah. I wonder if you wanted to comment on, I guess it seems pretty widely held to me that we are, you know, in the sort of like 80s, 90s stage when we're considering the analogy to like the development of the internet. Yeah. And, and I'm wondering if you, if you think that's a useful analogy in the first place. And if so, do you agree with that kind of timestamp? Like, are we in the early 90s portion of blockchain relative to the development of the internet? I think that the analogy is a good one because it helps a lot of people understand, you know, the the pre-infliction point that we are right now. Most people, um, you know, looked at the big bubble we had in, in, in 2017 uh, as, you know, the, the big dot-com crash, you know, where everything lost value because it was more easy to compare liquid stuff to liquid stuff, meaning because crypto has value and it's tradable and it's liquid from you know the very early stage, and the internet got to that stage only after 10 years. So that's why most people get that comparison wrong. I think that when you look at blockchain from a technology perspective, um, you see that in terms of adoption, you know, the internet in, in, in 1993, 94 were, was about, you know, the same, about 50 million users, not a lot of use cases. Not a, in 1994, the, there wasn't even active, you know, revenue models on the internet because you weren't allowed to advertise on websites. Uh, it ran by, you know, it was ran by the NSF, uh, National Science Foundation, and it was just, you know, decentralized, supporting, developing uh, uh, way to build a network, and only later on, you know, so the, the the commercial companies started, you know, chiming in and trying to find new ways to increase audience, and and later on find business models. And I think that if we're looking at crypto and uh, uh, blockchain in general, uh, we're we're in a similar stage where we see early stage adoption, we see early stage use cases. If we're open and 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 you know have a, a, a strong enough imagination, we can try to see where it's going to go, but we're not there yet. One of the interesting things that people don't know is that the the, the internet, you know, the internet development from the 1990 to 2000 had a few smaller bubbles. Uh, uh, in between, which most people didn't know about because the assets weren't liquid. So I think that that blockchain, Bitcoin, crypto, and this entire market behave very similarly uh, from a financial point of view and very similarly from a technology point of view. You just need to know to pinpoint you know, the right uh, uh, points in time uh, when you do the reference. So what... What in the space, you said you're fairly bullish on DeFi. You yeah. said that is the area of the space that excites you the most short term? There are, I would say, you know, when I look at the market right now, I have three major investment theses, three major parts that I'm, I'm, I'm bullish. Open finance is definitely one of them. Uh, I'm also looking, you know, at payments. Uh, which is basically the transformation 
of of uh, payments from electronic to to made it digital, uh, happening through stable coins of all sorts, uh, Maker, Tether, and all of the others. And I think that there will be a very interesting boom that's about to happen later this year when Facebook's Libra project is going to launch and Telegram's token is going to launch. And there will be a lot of things that will bring native digital payments, you know, on, on the wild. And so everything around uh, digital payments is something that I'm very bullish on in the, in the short term. And uh, the third one is institutionalization. Obviously, we've been hearing that for a while now, but in the last 12 months, you've been seeing, you know, the institutions above board and below doing actual moves into the space. Uh, everyone knows, you know, Fidelity and Beckett and, and JP Morgan and, and stuff, but there are other plays that I know of that I can discuss, but uh, that, that do, does show, do show enormous investments by traditional institution uh, in blockchain and crypto. And I think that there is a whole new infrastructure and environment that uh, uh, goes around that in order to facilitate and help those institutions uh, uh, to get more familiar, to get more comfortable with the space that will create a lot of value in, in, in the short term. So, Yaniv, with, with that thinking, what do you think about exchange tokens? So we've had some fun conversations in the past about, yeah. you know, BNB and kind of all of its imitators. Like, does, does that... Does that fall into the institutionalization part of your thesis? Uh, no, no, it actually doesn't fall into any of my thesis. Uh, any of my thesis, I'm uh, I'm still out about uh, exchange tokens in general. Obviously, you know, Binance is a different thing. I I'm I'm, I'm bullish on on Binance on the short term, definitely. Uh, I have a little, you know, I do have some issues. Uh, I, we discussed that, you know, uh, uh, when we met last time, but. I do have some problems with, you know, valuations of, of exchange tokens. On the one hand, you know, uh, Binance were, were the first to, 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 I would call, crypto mainstream it uh, uh, with, you know, with discounts, which worked out, you know, nicely for them. But the big jump was basically when they took Ether's, you know, happened to be use case, uh, which is a platform for ICOs. Uh, I think that, you know, building the launch pad and creating Binance Chain as a network for, you know, uh, uh, tokens that are midway to developing their own blockchain or just need a basic ERC-20-like token to, to support their economics, you know, is, is very interesting. But I have a problem with the way that they... Uh, utilize their token in, in you know, in, in burning. A lot of people compare that, you know, into buybacks because basically there are less shares in the market, more value is created for uh, uh, the shareholders, which in case of exchange tokens doesn't really happen because you don't get any dividends, at least yet. Uh, that might happen with the future. Uh, CD is, is known to be very creative. Uh, with stuff like that, but 
uh, right now, when it's not uh, creating actual uh, uh, payouts for token holders, then the meaning of, of uh, burnout of the tokens isn't really, you know, creating value besides the uh, chain, the actual change in, in MV equals BQ because you lower the Q, then, then the price should grow uh, uh, accordingly. But then again, you know, the price, the, the, the market right now still behaves very irrationally in terms of valuation. Uh, you can see in the last quarter or so that we're back in the uh, early, even mid bull market days where like side partnership announcements uh, can flip a token to 20, 30, 700%. It happened, but then again, if we're going back to, to exchange tokens, again, Binance short run, very bullish. Longer term, jury is still out. You still need to better understand the economics behind it. It's not, you know, the only thing that works in their favor, to my opinion right now, is that at least, you know, to my knowledge, they're looking to make Binance into an actual DAO. A distributed autonomous organization. And when that happens, where the token holders will be equivalent to shareholders in their organization, that will be a place, you know, where I'll go fully bullish. But until that happened, I'm still out. Let me jump in with a point of clarity and then a question um, about that. So I think I agree with you practically, but maybe not theoretically, about the token burning. Because I think practically you're you're 100% right in that the large reserves of tokens held by someone like Binance that they're burning from, those represent more of like an, not, I, don't, I think existential threat is the wrong word, but there's a possibility of Binance like unleashing those on the market and suppressing price. And as they burn tokens, that possibility becomes less and less. Mm-hmm. Now, I, don't, I think most people who buy BNB today think of that mechanism less as reducing the risk of, you know, unloading tokens on the market and reducing price in the short term, increasing circulating supply. And more as like, as burning happens, their tokens will become more valuable. And so both, both are kind of true, but it's more of a long-term increase in price and a short-term reduction in the ability of Binance to just unload tokens and suppress price. I, I, I completely agree. All right, so that's that's the point of clarity. Now, my question is, why are you more bullish about Binance the DAO versus Binance um, as it's currently constructed? Okay, so so right now, you know, Binance uh, is a for-profit company that is built to create value to its shareholders and not its token holders. And at the moment, you know, even though they're burning they're burning funny money uh, that, you know, with 20% of their profits, uh, which is, you know, nice because they could have dumped it on the market. Uh, it's still not really creating value for token holders. I see at the moment, you know, again, it's, it's very uh, blunt, but I don't see BNB creating value for token holders at all. You know, it's blunt because, and it's pretty extreme because it does create value. Otherwise, people wouldn't have bought it. 
you know, people buy it to get into IEOs and people buy it to trade on discount on Binance and so on and so on. But uh, at the moment, I don't see it as creating actual value that makes people, you know, uh, 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 want to hold the token or, or being it worthwhile for them to, to hold the token uh, uh, outside of, you know, holding a couple for, for discount on fees and, and maybe a, 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 you know, an amount to, to enter IEOs uh, right now. They even, they even made the game, you know, trickier now with their lottery system where you actually have to, to you know, stake as more tokens as, you know, if you want to get a better chance in, in winning a ticket to an IEO. So they're, they're, CZ is doing like amazing, I would call it tokenomics work in order to, to create a demand for the token, but de- creating demand and the token creating value are two different things for me. And when Binance, you know, becomes a DAO where, you know, the, the, the math kind of changes because in a DAO, supposedly, again, there isn't any real working world in the wild DAO right now, but supposedly, in DAO, in a DAO, shareholders are the token holders. They're supposed to be the same, even if it's you know different kind of tokens and classes and stuff like that. There are all kinds of things you can do here. But once that happens, I can see Binance creating a lot of value for the token holders and being able to first off enjoy actually enjoy Binance's profits. Uh, again, the biggest exchange, the most profitable exchange, and so on and so on. And on the other hand, you know, get actual, you know, more governance decisions, not just, you know, voting on those flipping voting who gets to be listed thing, but actual, you know, voting decisions on what's happening, uh, of projects not just listing or maybe delisting or, you know, which projects, uh, I don't know, all kinds of stuff. Or revenue share, or you know, uh, developments of the uh, of the blockchain and stuff like that. That's where I see real value comes into play. And when this convergence happens, again, at least at this stage where Binance is where it is today, I see I'm, I'm I'll be super bullish on on that. On the BNB token specifically, not just on Binance, the organization. Again, once you know Binance becomes. A DAO, again, at least in theory and, and how the, the prospects of what it looks like today, BNB holders, you know, or another class of, of Binance token to be issued will be the shareholders. So mm-hmm. we don't know yet whether it's going to be BNB or something else. It's, it's early on. And I don't think it will happen in the near future, but... If and when that happens, you know, that's a super bullish case. So, Yanivia, the reason I brought up MakerDAO and, you know, Binance specifically are, those are examples of, you know, I think what you highlighted at the beginning of where, like, I think myself and, you know, the the fund might look favorably on kind of like the go-to-market biz dev overall strategy of, let's say, like a Binance or of Maker. But Mm -hmm. then when it comes to like how value will accrue and if that will go, you know, to underlying equity in the form of finance or if it'll go, 
you know, for both BNB and MKR, the maker token to the, mm-hmm. to that token, that is where I'm, you know, right now, I, I don't see how that will really play out. And I, I definitely agree that there, most of the, the, you know, projects in the space, you don't need to look at the tokenomics. You can just kind of say no for the, the mm-hmm. general thesis reasons, but the yeah. examples of where you have like, what would traditionally be really good businesses, but perhaps they weren't set up well in terms of their underlying token incentives. Mm-hmm. Those are the types of conversations that, you know, I find fascinating. That's why, why we started the tokenomics podcast. Again, I, I, I agree with you again. And I must say that my, my thesis on tokenomics has changed a lot in the last few months, even after our, our conversation, a lot due to my, uh, studies of, of futurism and, and the way things work. One of the interesting, you know, concepts that I, I'm trying to trying to educate myself things not from a what why this won't work perspective, but why it could work perspective. And when you look at a lot of the things that I used to disqualify in 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 all kinds of tokenomics, especially you know with regards to what we discussed uh, uh, earlier, you know, there are a lot of things that uh, I just disqualified saying, you know, they're open-ended tokenomics. There's going to be like huge velocity. There's no real need for a token here. Bam, goodbye. Uh, But when you look at things, you know, from a different perspective, when you look at things, you know, putting the velocity things aside for a second, looking at what, you know, uh, uh, what people can do with a native digital asset as a part of that platform, service, network, and so on and so on. Um, there are a lot of, you know, things that I rethink right now that I wouldn't disqualify as I did before. You know, uh, again, I, I, we talked about TCRs a little bit, and, and even though I, I admired the idea because it, it was close-ended and it gave value, you know, to the people who stake the token to get into the list and to the people who hold the token in order to curate the list. Uh, it was still rather hard to find a use case where people would create something that would be big enough in order to create value for all parties involved. And when you put that, let's say, put that aside, Put it outside of the equation, you see things that you know Yelp could be easily could, could easily be a TCR. Okay. It won't work right now because you know the market is and the way people behave and the UX and the UI and so on and so on. But when you put these things out, and again, as an investor, you have to consider to consider these things as well. But when you look at things from a first principle perspective, you see crazy ideas that have a real chance of succeeding if and and when you know market conditions apply. But again, it, it is very interesting because tokenomics is so early on, and because a lot of the primitives that we're talking about, you know, were just recently invented. And or or imported from from other industries, and a lot of things are are still even yet to be written. You know, it's it's. I think again, my opinion, my opinion alone is that you have to first 
before you make that, you know, more judgmental, more critical approach into, you know, this is a problem, this won't work because of this and X and Y, uh, you have to consider the, the logics and, and why it can work first. And I think that specifically for tokenomics, uh, uh, as an investor, it's a critical thing because otherwise you would, just as I did, again, I'm, I'm, uh, 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 I learned a lot in the last few months, um, you would disqualify a lot of things that have good potential, but you know, just don't make sense right now. I think our discussion of Binance illustrates this really nicely, but there's also a wrinkle that is, is worth mentioning. So the idea that when BNB releases their token, it doesn't, it seems overvalued. You know, you're, it's not clear why this should be valuable, why this will work. There are tokenomic issues. But if you have a different lens of how this could work, you, know, you can maybe anticipate that kind of transition towards a DAO where the incentives of Binance and the token holders are much more closely aligned. And the success of Binance the business translates more directly to the success of Binance token holders. That being said, what is the incentive for Binance to make that transition? That's perhaps an open question. Yeah. They, they say they will, but yeah. I'm sure they have equity holders now who, I mean, that, that's something that has to be resolved. But I agree that you know, if you can imagine that kind of transition and place some sort of probability on it, then that is probably a better route to making an investment decision than just writing things off because your first instinct is that this doesn't make sense on the tokenomics basis. I, I agree. And, and I, I, I have done, I have done that. I've actually created, you know, scenarios, you know, of, of that happening and how finance could compensate uh, uh, equity holders with tokens, you know, when they make that switch. Uh, right now, I give, you know, a probability of, of somewhere between 25 to 30% of that happening, at least in the next 12 to 24 months. Uh, things might change as, as, you know, the market develops. But uh, right now, you know, that's the probability that I would give it. Considering, you know, public announcements, considering their product lineup and the fact that they actually launched the chain of the decks and, and everything, you know, in between, uh, that's the probability I would put it in right now. Well, Yaniv, we lost Zach and we've taken a lot of your time and I don't think there's going to be a natural end of the conversation. I think we could <laughs> likely keep talking for a while, but we shouldn't. Yeah. Uh, we should get back to our uh, various attempts at valuations and reallocations and such. And I guess in your case, writing a daily news, uh, newsletter, if people are interested in learning more about you, finding that newsletter, where should they go? bit.do slash crypto brief. bit.do slash crypto brief. Uh, that's, the, that's where they'll find my daily newsletter. And if not, they can just ping me on Twitter. It's Yaniv F. Uh, and I'll send them a link. Awesome. And we will obviously post to that in the show notes. Uh, Yaniv, thank you so much for joining us. And hopefully we'll get a chance to speak again soon. Uh, it's a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me.